host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Davis. Dr. Davis is an associate professor and director for the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education at Ohio State University, and his research is related to exploring the acute and persisting effects of psychoactive substances, examining novel psychological and pharmacological interventions for things like depression, and he's done research with things like psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for depression. And so we talked a lot about the human clinical experience with psychedelics, including his research on psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. We spent some time at the beginning talking about traditional mainstream approaches to treating things like depression and other psychiatric illnesses. So we talked about psychotherapy and the different forms of psychotherapy that are out there that are commonly used. We talked about things like SSRIs and the traditional mainstream pharmacological or, or medication-based approaches that are used to treat things like depression. We talked about you know how many people those things tend to work for, both alone and in combination. What percentage of people do those things not work for? And, and why do we think these treatments don't work for everyone? We talked about psychedelics and psilocybin in particular, including some of the research that Professor Davis and others have done around psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. We talked about the ways in which those approaches or those treatments differ from traditional treatments and sort of what the the timeline and what the outlook is for things like psilocybin becoming mainstream FDA-approved ways to treat people for things like depression or addiction or other psychiatric illnesses. So if you're interested in uh, psychedelic medicine and psychedelic science, especially as it relates to human clinical research and treating things like depression and other forms of psychiatric illness, this will be a very interesting episode for you. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. Thanks for having me. Research you do. You do? 
Certainly. I'm a clinical psychologist, but I find myself uh, training, have trained in psychiatry as well as social work. I'm actually currently a uh, director of the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education and associate professor in the College of Social Work at Ohio State University. I also have an appointment as a faculty member at Johns Hopkins in psychiatry as well as in the psychiatry department at OSU. So I kind of find myself working largely in interdisciplinary spaces, um, mostly focused on the topic of psychedelic therapies, uh, running clinical trials, uh, examining the safety and efficacy of this treatment for uh, people with depression, and most recently for veterans with PTSD, and looking to advance the work in underrepresented uh, folks as well. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about psilocybin and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, but I also want to sort of give people a foundation in terms of, you know, why that research is being done and how it compares to more traditional or, or widespread treatment options. So for, for something like depression, say, what what are the major forms of psychotherapy that are used and and sort of how do they work and how effective are they? So for the current treatments that are out there, mostly people can think of them as within two camps, one being uh, psychotherapies. Uh, so talking to a therapist about uh, issues related to mood or, or behavior. And then there's also medication, psychopharmacology. So there are largely antidepressant. Most people are familiar with at least the term SSRI or, um, or some are known as SNRIs. But those two types of treatments are about equally effective on their own. So, um, you know, not everyone will respond to therapy, not everyone will respond to medications. Uh, some people find one a better path than the other. Um, both are about equally effective. They work in about, you know, let's say 30 to 50% of people. Um, however, they don't work for everyone. They're, they're better when they are used together. So someone who both is in therapy and on an, an SSRI is, is typically going to do better than if they're on any one of those treatments alone. Um, but they're not meeting the need that people have. And I think in part, it's because both currently take an approach of kind of reducing down into, you know, kind of a, a theoretical component, what the understanding of a mental health problem is. So for SSRIs, you know, the, the idea is, is that, well, there must be a, an imbalance in serotonin. And so if we give this medication, it's going to correct this imbalance, and then we're going to, you know, make people feel better. Well, the reason that doesn't work is because that doesn't really take into account all the other factors that make people depressed, like, you know, living in a, you know, oppressive system and a society and an environment that doesn't really lend itself well to, you know, promoting mental health being, you know, just one of those factors. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's a number of things that kind of get in the way of, of, of how helpful they are, but they do work for some people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a starting point to try, um, but then we need to find more options. And, and when you say that psychotherapy and medication using something something like SSRIs work in about 30 to 50 percent of people for for each each one what what exactly does that mean does that mean 30 to 50 percent of people who try one of those are going to see some improvement does that mean that they go into complete remission with their depression what, what actually um, constitutes an improvement there so typically a improvement is going to mean just any kind of reduction in symptoms. So there's two ways that that is measured. One is called a response. A clinical response is at least a 50% reduction in the intensity of your depression symptoms or any other kind of mental health symptom. Or there's remission where your symptoms drop below the line kind of necessary for it being like a diagnosable um, condition. So, you know, the overall effect of SSRIs is is kind of a moderate effect. Um, so it's not big, it's not large, it's not small, but it it varies somewhere between that kind of, you know, 30 to 50 or 40 to 60%. But in terms of getting people all the way to a remission place where they're no longer able to be diagnosed because, you know, it's working so well, that's probably on the, the lower end of, of about 30%. I see. And are there any, like, are there any clear patterns in terms of like, who that 30% is? Do, do the 30% of people where, where they go into complete remission or they have very significant symptom reduction, do they share anything in common or is it is it sort of impossible to predict ahead of time if someone's going to respond that way? You know, that's a great question. And I unfortunately don't know that level of detail about um, antidepressant medication. I do think that um, there is some evidence to suggest that um, it's probably folks 
where the hypothesis about what is contributing to their depression, meaning that, you know, with with giving a medication, the hypothesis is that there's a chemical imbalance in the brain that needs to be corrected, right? So that 30% of people that, that are able to achieve remission are probably people who are as close as possible to that hypothesis being accurate for them. And and there are a variety of reasons that depression exists. And, and this chemical, you know, this biological basis is really just one of those factors like as as i mentioned earlier the environment is is equally important to why people have mental health problems as these biological characteristics there are also a variety of traumatic and stressful things that happen to people in their lives that you know is kind of broadly a part of that environment as well so so medications aren't going to treat that you know medications aren't going to to take someone out of poverty for example medications aren't going to you know alleviate someone being in an abusive relationship right so so i would say that it's more likely the case that those 30% are probably kind of purists, so to speak, in terms of like, maybe they have a supportive environment. Otherwise, they have, you know, resources, they're probably, probably more resourced in terms of housing and food stability and other things, um, and are probably as close to possible as that chemical imbalance being like maybe the most important factor for them um, would be my guess. I, I really can't speak to whether or not that's been like rigorously tested empirically, but that would be my theoretical guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, two things come to mind there. One would be, you know, e- even if someone is close to this sort of theoretical serotonin imbalance idea, let's just assume that's true for some people. Um, if, if, a change in the balance of something like neurotrans- uh, a neurotransmitter like serotonin is an important component of depression, and that's sort of an outcome of the inputs that are causing that depression. You know, simply fixing that, but not taking them out of uh, you know whatever whatever environment is 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 you know producing the inputs that cause the depression and the imbalance or whatever. Um, treating them with something like an SSRI might fix that sort of endpoint, but. Mm-hmm if they don't actually change their environment, you're just, you're constantly having the same inputs that are going to feed into that. So that, you know, if you go off the medication or you stop psychotherapy, you're just going to revert back. The other thing that comes to mind that I would just love to get your basic thoughts on is, I mean, the the brain is obviously very, very complicated. There's, uh, I don't think anyone, you know, I don't think anyone seriously believes that, you know, depression is ever caused by only something like serotonin being out of balance. Uh, there's lots and lots of factors. And I think except most- for the pharmaceutical industry who would like <laughs> to convince you of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, there's so many, you know, psychiatric illness in particular, when you're talking about the brain, it's so complicated that, you know, you can have the same thing in two different people, say, say major depressive disorder, and it could have, you know, a partially or even a completely different underlying, you know, biological cause. And uh, I would imagine that that's also a factor here. You know, one person's depression might look on the surface like another's, but the, the biological causes of that could be very different. Yeah, and not only can the biological causes be uh, diverse and, and varied, but obviously the environments can be diverse and varied, and it, the symptoms are can be interpreted differently depending on one's culture, depending on one's um, insight of their own kind of physiological, you know, experience in life, the, the way that they think, and so the way that the kind of the information that comes back to them when they talk about their experiences with people like loved ones and others, and and it's like each individual individual's experience of their depression or their PTSD or whatever the condition is will be filtered through all of these different lenses. And so it's really difficult, if not impossible, to really even have a, you know, a diagnostic category like like major depressive disorder and and have any confidence at all that we're actually, you know, meaningfully diagnosing and, and and measuring and understanding a condition in in any more than one person at a time if, if that makes sense like it's it's to me the whole the whole pursuit of a diagnostic classification system is a misrepresentation of the idiosyncrasies of of which mental health problems come up to begin with yeah I'm, yeah i mean i think uh, it's it's so hard to for anyone to to even just speak about their feelings their subjective experience the way that different people talk about it, you know, they might be having the same phenomenology in in their experience, but they describe it in two different ways, just because they have, you know, a, a different vocabulary and mm-hmm. a different. And it's so sort of, uh, you know, these things are so sort of ephemeral and amorphous, uh, just mm-hmm. just intrinsically. Um, you know, the other thing is, um, 
you know, I think for most psychiatric illness, right, there's there's no there are no actual like objective tests. There's no there's no you can't get blood work uh, and know that, you know, you've got depression or something like that. Is is that something you also think about or, or that the field of psychiatry and clinical psychology thinks about, like developing ways to assess uh, someone's psychiatric condition without relying solely on their self, the, the words they use to self-report? Yes. And in, and not only has it been of interest, but, you know, billions of dollars have been put into into research looking at, you know, the biological basis of, of these conditions with, frankly, very little outcome that's led to, you know, a clear ability to, to do something like a blood test or a genetic test and, and have any kind of understanding. I think there is some, there's some benefit that's come from that research, but that research has largely been designed with this kind of like reductionistic classification lens, right? Where they want to get to a point where they can say, okay, well, now we've found the, you know, the biomarker for depression as if that biomarker exists solely within the body, that it's definable and that it will kind of apply cross-culturally and, and even within culture across individuals. And to me, that's the same farce that has that has led to having antidepressant medication as a, you know, a treatment for people, right? The, the medication is not actually solving the problem of depression. For some people who are in remission, who will take that medication for the rest of their life, who will deal with the side effects of that medication and will deal with a variety of other things that come up because of having to take that medication for the rest of their lives, for some people they are in remission. But that does not mean that like any of this approach is actually leading towards healing of what that depressed state is. And, you know, in so, so if it's roughly 30 to 50%, give or take, of people with something like depression will respond to some degree uh, from taking something like an SSRI. How many of those people have um, side effects uh, that are either chronic while they're on it or that persist after the medication stops? So, you know, even for the 30 to 50% where it works to some extent, does it work and uh, they're, they're better to some extent or do some significant proportion of them also have other things that go wrong because of the, the medication? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people that have side effects from medication. That's one of the reasons why people don't stay on them. It's one of the reasons why the you know the efficacy rates are so low is because people find them intolerable. You know, they deal depending on the medication. It it obviously varies on what people might experience as a side effect, but it's everything from nausea and vomiting and diarrhea to weight gain and and feeling like you're empty inside um, or feeling you know more anxious, nervous. Uh, some people will have you know major side effects into their sexual functioning, um, typically as a reduction in sexual desire or difficulty orgasming. And, and people will have increase in, in appetite, which of course contributes to weight gain. So there's just, you know, there's there's so many side effects for all of these different medications that have been developed. And, and a lot of people really struggle with them. And are, are all of those like acute side effects that they have when they're on the medication? Are there any that can you know, because there's a lot of people that are on SSRIs for years, sometimes many years. Mm -hmm. And then if those people stop, are there any side effects that is there anything about their bio biology that uh, changes that, that has an enduring change that sort of never goes back? Yeah, I'm not sure entirely about that question, but I, I will say just anecdotally from people that I've worked with, um, some of them who have come into the the psilocybin clinical trials who have been on medications for a really long time, they do describe a kind of overall dampening of their emotional connection to things. And I think that there is some emerging evidence showing that uh, the you kind of the longer someone's been on an SSRI, you know, there's also like a potential dampening of like things like the psychedelic experience, and which I think kind of goes to this notion that you know the brain the brain might be you know I, I hate to use the word forever it might be changed for a while uh, that persists beyond just discontinuing that medication just because of how long the brain has kind of been in this medicated state. And so on the psychotherapy side, so if someone goes in for talk therapy, what are the major sort of forms or strategies of psychotherapy? Like I know, I know there's cognitive behavioral therapy and there's other forms of therapy. What are the big ones there and do they have different levels of effectiveness? Why are some more popular than others? Like what, what are the major forms of psychotherapy? 
There are several. There's uh, There's been kind of waves of psychotherapy development over time. Some of the early treatments that are, that are pretty effective um, are called behavioral therapies. One is called behavioral activation in, in, in particular for depression, um, which is really about kind of getting active, getting the body moving, that kind of just engaging in behaviors that can reinforce, um, you know, uh, physical activity, kind of things like working out, going to the gym, going on a walk, um, things that can activate one socially, kind of getting engaged with, you know, friends, with a community that, you know, this type of behavioral activation has been shown to be an effective strategy to help with depression. Um, since then, you know, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which really just adds into that behavioral component. Also, this understanding that the mind, the, one's thoughts also affect one's emotions. So it's not just behavior, it's behavior, thoughts, and emotions that as like a triad can kind of, uh, at any one of those places can kind of create a, a chain of, of depressed thoughts or anxious thoughts that, um, that can also give kind of a, a place to um, intervene at any of those levels. So something like, you know, someone having a, a depressed thought, you know, there's, there's strategies that can be used to kind of help deal with that. Um, there's a newer wave of treatments that are also available now called, um, uh, mindfulness-based therapies. There's one called acceptance and commitment therapy that is that has gained quite a bit of popularity. All of these, what, what we're calling third wave therapies, all of these third wave therapies really are an integration of um, mindfulness, uh, understanding more of kind of the, an, an Eastern approach to mental health and well-being. Uh, things like meditation and and uh, awareness of breath and 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 body. And that these approaches, when you combine them within this kind of CBT space, that the combination of these things seem to be helpful for people. But what we know from decades of research on any of these treatments, especially those treatments where they're actually compared to each other, is that they're all about the same in terms of how well they work. They work, you know, for some, they don't work for everyone. They're also, you know, pretty expensive to get into therapy, to have the type of resources that allow one to do this for months, typically, if not longer. Um, and so they're about as effective as, as the antidepressants out there. Um, they're more effective if you're doing both at the same time. There's, a, there's kind of an added advantage there. Um, but uh, probably what's the biggest thing that we've learned from the, the research on psychotherapy therapies is it's about fit. It's about the fit between what's the right person, what's their approach, what kind of therapist are they working with? Is that therapist, is it a good approach for them? How well does that fit together, um, that match? Um, is what typically is going to be shown to be um, effective for an individual, um, which is hard because there's a lot of therapists out there that are doing a lot of different things. And people don't often know that they can go into a therapist and like interview them, right? And, and kind of want to assess, like as a customer, want to assess the fit and want to assess the treatment that's being, you know, offered to them. Um, and some, for some reasons, because people just don't know that that there are different treatments or there are, you know, different approaches, but, um, but it is about that fit. And it's also about the relationship. So we know from a lot of research that the, the, what we call the therapeutic alliance or the, the kind of safety and the connection that people feel with developing, you know, trust in a provider, with developing trust in a therapist that kind of becomes a safe space for them to explore the dark and squishy parts of themselves that, that they don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing with everybody, that that relationship is also really effective in and of itself, regardless of what treatment's being provided to somebody, um, that just having that safety and that space and that trust can also um, help people feel better. And so... Uh, psychedelics and psilocybin-assisted therapy um, been getting a lot of attention over the past few years. I know that you've been involved in some of those trials. Can you just kind of give us a, a state of the art for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for things like depression? What does the totality of the clinical research say today? It, it, would you say it's proven that psilocybin is effective at some level? Um, where are the clinical trials at in terms of you know phase two, three, four, and and all of that? So just where are we today with that? So we are, I would say, at the, the late stage of all of the research that will need to take place before the FDA will have enough information to decide whether or not it should be made available to the public. That phase of research that we're in is called phase three, uh, and that's the last phase where um, a treatment is explored typically at multiple sites around the country or the world um, uh, in, in hundreds of people as opposed to these smaller studies that are only done in, in dozens. 
<clears throat> excuse me and uh that research is is largely pointing towards uh the likelihood of approval by fda um and probably the european medicines agency as well uh within the next i would say 12 to 18 months so we are we are pretty close uh, of course nothing scientifically is ever definitive so you know i can't say for certain whether you know that data will lead to to approval but it seems it seems like there's you know the writings on the wall to some extent uh and the reason i say that is because of not only the preliminary evidence evidence that's that's being published you know over the last few years but also because you know the FDA has signaled to the Biden administration that the uh, the likelihood of approval for psychedelic medicines is you know strong and that they're not too far in the future and so because of that there's actually been a federal task force that has been initiated at this point to to bring together all the different stakeholders at the federal level who would be involved in overseeing this type of dissemination of a treatment so people at the DEA obviously are involved in this conversation. The people at Department of Health and Human Services who oversee things like Medicaid and Medicare and overall kind of guidance around uh, treatments that should be covered um, by those nationalized um, uh, healthcare system. Uh, people at the VA. Uh, so there's a lot of stakeholders involved in these conversations. And and my guess is that those conversations would not have been initiated if we weren't if we weren't at some level of, of, of certainty that there's enough evidence already to suggest that uh, psilocybin therapy is, is, is going to be uh, at least an effective option for some people. And what basic results have people seen so far in trials for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for depression in terms of, you know, what are the effect sizes? Is it working for a similar percentage? to like the 30 30 to 50% we see for SSRIs is it working for more people is it working for people who SSRIs didn't help their depression like where do like what kind of uh what kind of effects are we seeing so it does vary a little bit by study. So um, I'll try to do my best to summarize. But in in general, what we're seeing is that uh, there is a larger proportion of people in these studies who are in complete remission from depression. Uh, in our study that we completed at Johns Hopkins, which was the first um, randomized controlled trial looking at uh, comparing psilocybin therapy uh, to a waitlist, uh, no treatment group, was that 50% uh, of the people that were in that study were in complete remission at one month. After after the treatment was over. Now keep in mind that you know, 50%, it's still larger than the 30% in remission, you know, from antidepressants or, or psychotherapy, but it also only took, you know, two doses of, of psilocybin in conjunction with about 13 hours of therapy. So one treatment package, two doses of a medication, and 50% of people were in remission. What was really interesting is that at one year later, after the treatment was over, that 50% of people were still in remission. So these are folks who uh, often had been on a variety of other medications, had tried psychotherapy, had 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 been through the gamut, so to speak, of other approaches and either found them to be not as successful as they needed them to be. So maybe they had some benefit, but not completely, or they were dealing with side effects that they didn't like, um, or for some, you know, the treatments never helped. So, so that's pretty remarkable in and of itself, just to kind of see that uh, on some of the other larger studies that have been, that have been conducted now uh, comparing uh, both to placebo as well as um, other treatments like SSRIs, uh, we see that um, in one of those studies, there was a, um, on almost all indications all indications of of looking at the variety of ways you can measure depression on almost all of them they showed that psilocybin therapy had a favorable um, treatment profile compared to um, SSRIs um, with the exception of this one measure that was kind of their official measure of, of um, uh, symptoms which subsequently now there's been some interesting studies looking at whether that measure was actually appropriate to use uh, as that comparison um, and yeah but in, in any event so I the reason I bring that up is because there's likely to be um, some diminishing effect as we get into these bigger studies, as we compare to placebo, as we have hundreds, if not thousands of people that are eventually treated in these studies. I think we're going to see that it's maybe not as high as 50% remission, um, in part just because, you know, those studies that are so small, they're so selective to get into them. You know, it's very narrow in terms of the type of people that are in those kinds of studies. And so, similar to how we have people who don't have just like a purely biological basis of depression, right? And and we kind of, as you disseminate treatments out into the real world to real people who are not so selectively, you know, chosen, we're likely to see some diminishing in that. It's likely though that it's still 
at least as effective as other options, if not probably more effective than other options. Yeah, and I imagine that's typical, right? As as the as you progress with the uh, you know phase one, two, three uh, trials, they get mm-hmm. bigger, and you're casting a wider net. And right. that's probably common, right? That the sort of effect size is probably diminished somewhat as you go through Absolutely. that progression. Absolutely. So, so it's it's definitely expected with every treatment as it as it reaches a broader and broader um, sample of people that have been tested, and it, and again, even when it goes from testing to implementation, you're certainly going to see some diminishment of effect there as well as it gets to like the biggest potential population. Um, at the same time, you know, even if we even if we end up in a place where we can say statistically or or scientifically that it's the same effectiveness as other treatments it still only takes two doses of the substance. It has a much more favorable side effect profile. It it leads to other really important things that people talk about in terms of their identity development and understanding their relationships better, moving towards things that are important to them in their life. So even outside of symptom reduction, these this treatment provides a whole range of other types of enduring effects that people find um, desirable and important. And I think that um, it, that's that's very unique to this, this type of treatment. So even, even if it's only as effective as other treatments, it still seems like for some people it might be a much better option. Yeah, I mean, it, it is remarkable that you see this kind of effect from just two doses of something in the context of uh, several weeks of psychotherapy. Are So for the trials that have been done or that you've been involved with, are the people that are willing and able to do the psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, are these typically people that have tried other things and it hasn't worked, so they're just really hoping that that something new will work or like and sort of the other thing that's related to that i guess is how many of these people are completely naive to psychedelics and have never tried them before how many of them had previous experience with psychedelics and you know what's your sense for um you know what chunk of the patient population is going to be excited to try something like this if if other things have failed and what percentage might be intimidated and and wouldn't want to go through something like this so most of the studies that have been completed have been completed specifically with folks that are considered treatment resistant, which means that they've tried at least one, sometimes two or more other treatments and the treatments have not been successful. That's not the case for every study, like our depression study at Hopkins, we didn't require that they had that background. But I think because of the nature of this kind of these studies right now, the nature of them being highly experimental, they're using a psychedelic, which has a whole, you know, stigmatized background in people's minds about what psychedelics are. Um, because of all of that, we're still typically seeing, even when it's not a requirement, that most people in the studies have had several medication trials in the past. It has not worked for them. And so they kind of they find their way into these studies as kind of like a last hope, you know, of trying to find something that will work for them. Um, and so um, but in terms of the, um, you know, the uh, the kind of the folks that this. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm kind of losing track a little bit on what the second part or third part of your question was. Um, yeah, maybe you could repeat it if you'd like. Oh, yeah. I was just asking, yeah, are there differences between people who have previous experience with psychedelics versus those that don't? And, you know, what's your general hmm. sense of, um, you know, how, you know, what percentage of people say are going to be interested in trying something like this versus those that, you know, might be intimidated by by the nature of a, of a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy? So most of the studies have a requirement that people have to have limited exposures to psychedelics prior to coming in the study. Um, usually what that means is that no exposure to psychedelics in the last five years, and there's a preference for really none ever, mm-hmm. um, ideally. But if it's more than five years ago and it you know was kind of like more like a recreational experience, it wasn't really done for the intention of a therapeutic experience, um, or if it, even if it was, but it didn't lead to like any kind of measurable important mm-hmm. changes or something like that, then we then people w- can get into the studies. But it really is trying to minimize, you know, n- knowing that this is potentially the first time someone has been exposed mm-hmm. to a psychedelic. Um, so in general, it sounds like the majority of patients that have done have gone through the trials that have been done so far are often uh, treatment resistant. So they've tried other things, at least one other thing before, and the majority mm-hmm. of them are also have limited to no history with psychedelics. 
Typically, that's probably a, a typical profile. Or if they have had experience with psychedelics, um, it's been, you know, in their, you know, years, if not decades ago, it was kind of like a blip of experimentation or something like that. But it wasn't like they were continuing to use psychedelics into adulthood or um, things like that. So, so typically, that's, I would say, a, a pretty common profile in the studies. Um, however, there are some folks who, especially with the on the history of depression side, there are some folks who have not tried treatments before, especially in our, our study at Hopkins, as I mentioned, you know, that we had several people in that study who had not tried anything uh, in terms of treatments uh, before that. So it's not the entire, you know, uh, encapsulation of folks, but that's that's a good general swath. Um, so I think in, in terms of like the latter part of your question about, you know, are there going to be people who are afraid of this treatment or who are going to have thoughts about it. I mean, absolutely. I mean, people have thoughts about it now for sure. There's people who, you know, are out there who I'm sure have, you know, for the last, you know, five, four or five decades been, you know, living in a misinformation campaign about psychedelics, you know, from all levels of uh, government and education spaces. So, you know, that unfortunately that that misinformation campaign um, has done a lot of damage to helping people understand what these substances are, their history, you know, their their long term in most cases, uh, history of an use in, in indigenous communities um, for things like treatment and, and rights of passage and at different parts of, of the developmental trajectory in people's lives that these these medicines have been used, you know, far longer than the Western research has been going on. So, um, but that, that, that information and that understanding and that contextualization and really the absence of any cultural container or context uh, in the U.S. for psychedelics as a result of that has led to people being afraid of these substances and people worrying about the, the potential risks that might be involved. There's been, you know, there's been just like, 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 ab like fabricated lies told to them <laughs> for so long that, you know, you just start to believe the lies after a period of time and you know in terms of the the subjective experience when people go through these therapy sessions that that are assisted with psilocybin obviously everyone's going to have their own unique experience and no you know no two experiences are going to be identical or even similar but you know in terms of the people that go into complete remission you know six to 12 months out and those that don't really see response are there any kind of common threads in terms of how they report their experiences being do the people who go into remission like report a a better less terrifying experience or a stronger experience are, are there any patterns there so there are some patterns that have emerged i mean we know that that some of the acute effects of psychedelics things like the insight component you know getting a new understanding a new realization or awareness of of something about yourself um, about things that you've struggled with about relationships or or things in your life that are difficult you know that those insights that those new understandings can be incredibly powerful um, and are often correlated pretty strongly with um, uh, mental health improvements. The, the mystical or spiritual experience is another acute effect that there's evidence to suggest that uh, these, these spiritual moments in the psychedelic experience can also be helpful. They can be impactful for some, you know, it's described as, you know, one of the single most or top five spiritually significant and psychologically insightful experience of their entire life. Um, and so the, the impact of that type of experience can certainly um, not only matter you know, mathematically or statistically be related to outcome, but it, it's, I think it's just in general related to why people's perspectives have shifted and changed in terms of how they view themselves, how they view the world around them. Um, and also, you know, how their mental health shifts and changes as a result. Um, but there's also, you know, a variety of, of biological things that are happening in the brain. We know that, that for people who are depressed, you know, the part of the brain that, that is kind of, in, interacts with that depression that um, that will like overreact when it sees negative emotional things in the environment that will kind of reinforce this like depressive state this depressive kind of attitude because it's it's lighting up when it sees you know someone frowning on one side of the street as opposed to like someone smiling on the other side like it's it's a taking that information and the brain is like like it's like it's substantiating their depression right like oh yeah like it is life does suck because look this person's unhappy right that part of the brain 
when you have exposure to psilocybin therapy, that part of the brain reacts differently after the therapy is completed. It does not respond as strongly to that that negative emotional information in the environment. And so, you know, the, just the fact that the brain is changing and how it responds to things going on around the individual you know, helps us to see that it's, it's not just, it's not just someone's, you know, trip, although the trip seems to be important and helpful for people, but it also seems to be, there's just like biological changes happening at, at the, at the, the level of the neuron and, and the synapse in the brain that might also be contributing to this benefit. So, um, and there's a lot more that, you know, we're just starting to better understand there's, there's experiences of, of difficult physiological experiences that people sometimes feel as like, a release of some kind, an energetic release of some kind. Some people talk about emotional catharsis and, and ego dissolution and, and a variety of other things that we're really just starting to tap into to better understand um, how it's related. But but any of these types of things, any of these types of experiences seem to be potentially helpful for people. In terms of uh, the enduring effects, so you mentioned that in some of these studies, people, they followed up with patients six to 12 months after they did psilocybin assisted psychotherapy and uh, a significant proportion of them were still in remission which is which is great news what's the longest anyone's ever looked out is it 12 months or is it even longer my understanding is that the the study that we did at hopkins with a 12-month follow-up is the longest that's been published so far on uh, folks with depression um I do believe uh, that there are some studies that are trying to look beyond that now. We're actually at Hopkins, we're trying to do a four-year follow-up of all of those people who participated in that study, just to see it, you know, at three to four years out, you know, how does it look now, um, this far out? Um, so we'll kind of know, hopefully, by the end of this year, or early next year, what the results are from that. But as far as I know, that 12 months is the, is the farthest out that studies have, have published on uh, the topic of how enduring those effects have been. And in that study, we found that, you know, still about half were in remission. Um, and we also found even at 12 months out that people re were reporting that, you know, that experience was still one of the most personally meaningful, you know, experiences of their life. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's it led to a lot of other things besides just, you know, for some an antidepressant effect, for some it also led to new meaning and purpose. And um, so what, uh, are, are there any, um, are there any, enduring or or lasting side effects do people report any type of physiological change or anything else um that that outlasts the treatment itself so some of the most common side effects are things like transient anxiety that can happen during the, especially during the onset phase of the psychedelic experience uh, for some people that can be really difficult there can be panic there can be fear and anxiety it's one of the reasons why we do so much therapy ahead of time and why there's trained professionals in the room with someone when we do this treatment is to help manage some of that um, one of the other really common side effects is headache that comes usually later in the day of the session sometimes uh, over the following night or evening um but outside of that there are very few um and and as far as i can tell no serious uh, side effects um uh, for people um now that's also taking into consideration you know very careful selection process into these studies. And so when you look at just people using psychedelics out in the real world, outside of therapeutic context, there is a small but still, you know, meaningful risk for, you know, enduring um, problems related to, you know, you've probably, people have probably heard of like people having a bad trip. People have probably heard that there are people who struggle with, you know, some of the psychedelic effects that come back even after they've come down from the trip. And sometimes those, those lingering effects, like still seeing things moving in the visual field or still feeling kind of unsettled or kind of feeling some of the things they felt during you know that panic or fear place of the psychedelic state um, sometimes for those people there are some people who develop what's called hppd which is this kind of long-term ongoing um, kind of continued experience of these like kind of negative psychedelic effects um, it's a really rare condition it's it's estimated it's less than one percent of people who um, have 
develop this type of complication. And so far that has not happened at all. It's been 0% in the clinical trials, but in part because we're screening people out who might potentially be at risk for that. Um, so people who have like a history of, you know, psychosis in their family who have, you know, potentially like a predisposition to having some of those challenges um, are weeded out of the studies. So, you know, overall there's, I think very few, you know, risks involved in actually, you know, if you're carefully screened, if you're carefully prepared, if you're working with trained professionals, um, but there are risks that are that are that are there, and there some of the risks that are there, even when we do such careful selection and screening, are you know there's risk to kind of being vulnerable to suggestions of being vulnerable in a in a in a psychedelic state to um, to things that people might not you know otherwise consent to um, you know so there's been some studies that you know there's been some question about you know, what kind of therapy was provided, whether or not the the providers of those therapies were um, acting in, in ethical ways in terms of things like touch um, during uh, a session or kind of how they engaged physically with an individual. And there's even been some cases reported, you know, in some studies of sexual abuse. And so there are absolutely, you know, and I'm not, I'm not just talking about psilocybin, I'm talking about just like psychedelic therapy, generally speaking right now, um, you know, there are risks involved with, with people being in a vulnerable state that don't necessarily have anything to do with the side effects of the medication, but just have to do with like being in this kind of really intensely vulnerable space with, with other people. And in terms of the psychotherapy side of psilocybin assisted psychotherapy, there's several weeks of therapy that, that are surrounding the, you know, usually two doses of psilocybin that people get. Is this a new form of therapy that's very specific to these studies or is it is it basically one of the standard forms of therapy like CBT or something? What is the actual talk therapy side of this look like? So the therapy that's provided is in some ways kind of unique because part of the therapy is preparing someone for a psychedelic experience. So, you know, that certainly is something unique to this type of approach. And we spend many hours with people talking through kind of all the different types of things that might happen during the psychedelic experience and also helping to prepare them with skills, things they can use and, and do to navigate that psychedelic space. Uh, so that is obviously unique to this approach. Uh, but there's all, there's other things that we're doing as well that are not unique to this approach. You know, connecting with people in the therapy also means, you know, talking about things like their emotions and their behaviors and their thoughts and and talking about things like mindfulness and, and things that, as I mentioned earlier, are kind of a featured in a variety of different therapeutic approaches. So uh, for some studies, they're actually tying together the, the components that are specific to psilocybin therapy and, you know, uh, measurable components of, you know, official other therapies. So there are some studies that are using a acceptance and commitment therapy approach. And there's some studies who are using motivational interviewing or cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and they're really doing a full therapeutic package that you would otherwise see kind of in a, in a study just of that therapy. And they're kind of tying that, embedding that within, you know, this other kind of psychoeducational component for um, for preparing people for psychedelic experiences. And and there's a lot of studies that aren't, you know, tying a specific therapy that they're kind of they're kind of maybe doing a little bit more of an eclectic or integrative um, approach. But I would say that uh, most studies are are using some, you know, mix of both kind of what we already know is helpful from other therapies and kind of tying that into this newer approach for psychedelics. And I mean, there's a lot of different psychedelics and other psychoactives being investigated for all sorts of different stuff now, depression, addiction, other things. Um, I know that you've, you've done some work sort of comparing and contrasting some of these drugs. Um, so I know that you've looked at uh, psilocybin versus things like 5-MeO-DMT. And so uh, what have you seen there so far in terms of um, what are the major differences there, both in terms of subjective effects, the length or duration of the effects, and what do we think might be relevant there in terms of you know therapeutic potential? So, you know, there are a variety of differences with psychedelics. You know, they're they're broadly classified in the same group, but they can be very different depending on the context that people are in and and the type of substance they've consumed. Uh, for something comparing something like 5-MeO-DMT to psilocybin, the one of the biggest differences is the duration of effect. So 5-MeO-DMT typically lasts somewhere on the average of like 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the um, how it's consumed or how it's put into the body. 
um, when it's smoked or inhaled, it's it's much shorter duration. When it's injected intramuscularly or kind of evaluated in a, in a slower way into the body, um, the the effects are longer. But it's still you know less than you know forty five minutes uh, compared to psilocybin, which is you know four to six hours, um, and that's compared to something like LSD that's you know ten to twelve hours. So um, there are obviously a variety of the the ways in which the duration of these effects can be different, and because of that duration and the way in which things you know, there's the time course that people have in these experiences. There's also differences in the way that the the kind of effects will fluctuate, that people might have a variety of different types of experiences with psilocybin that kind of ebb and flow, you know, as the substance is moving its way through the through the through the body. Um, but you know, with 5-MeO-DMT, there's just such a narrow window of time to have any experience that it often just like comes on, there's like one experience and then it kind of comes down as opposed to psilocybin where you know it might come in waves there might be like an overall wave of effect that kind of reaches a peak and subsides but there might be like kind of additional waves that kind of come and go um especially throughout the latter hours of the experience um in terms of the the differences in the acute effects i mean those vary so much just even within substance by everything that relates to the individual who's consumed it and the environment that they're in and the preparation that they've had and their cultural con, you know contextualization um so there's so much just interdrug differences so it's hard to compare them directly in terms of the subjective effects although one of the biggest differences with something like 5-MeO DMT is that it doesn't seem to have as much visual phenomenology as other psychedelics so it seems to be uh uh, potentially more emotional and psychologically psychedelic as opposed to visually, um, but uh, seems to have equal, if not greater um, intensity of reported effects in other ways in terms of the emotional catharsis that people report experiencing or these really deep, you know, mystical and spiritual or insightful experiences that people report. So, um, so yeah, there's some overlapping things across these substances, but also a lot of, you know, just a lot of differences. And so based on your experience with some of these trials and and everything that you've done, uh, there's a big question, you know, in, in the field of psychedelic science, generally speaking, around, you know, whether or not the subjective effects are therapeutically relevant or even, you know, potentially unnecessary um, or whether they're just, you know, basically a side effect. Um, and there might be this, uh, there might be an ability to create derivatives of existing psychedelics that have... The benefits around you know generating the clinical outcomes we want but that don't require uh tripping at all um or or, or at least less than something like psilocybin or dmt or whatever based on your clinical experience on the clinical side here do you think it's likely that such drugs will be created do you think that the subjective effects are likely involved in the therapeutic outcomes here or are they are they you know plausibly irrelevant you know, as someone who's provided this treatment to people and seen firsthand the importance and the relevance of those subjective effects, it's hard for me to imagine that stripping those away would otherwise still make it effective. At the same time, as a scientist, I wouldn't rule it out. I just know that I haven't seen that <laughs> work yet. So it'll be curious to see with some of those studies, you know, whether or not they're able to demonstrate that it, it can be as effective. Um, I still think that people should have the, if nothing else, have the option and the opportunity to choose the fit that's the best fit for them. It might be the case that maybe for those people who aren't in remission, you know, from the typical psychedelic therapy approach, perhaps those people, maybe the, the acute effects were distracting or, you know, otherwise were confusing and led to, you know, difficulty in integrating the experience. You know, we've had some people who could make no sense of, of what happened to them in the psychedelic experience. And it was kind of distressing and difficult. And so, you know, for those people, maybe a better fit would be to then try a psychedelic without, you know, the acute effects and, and to see if that was helpful for them. Um, but for others, you know, there's such important meaning making that comes from these acute experiences that, you know, I, I would hate to see that stripped away from, from the model completely. Um, so hopefully it's a both and a situation in the future. There's going to be some people who are just terrified of psychedelics and the experiences that they've heard people have. And, and for those people, it might be better that they have an option that, that still potentially brings them relief, but obviate some of that, that anxiety. So yeah, I would, I, I hope to see a place for both approaches. Um, 
but my current experience seeing people, you know, with these experiences is that uh, to, to remove that completely would be missing the point. Mm-hmm. And what's your, um, what are your thoughts around microdosing? Have any, my understanding is that for, for psilocybin and, and most other things that have been studied clinically, uh, typically, or, or pretty much every time we're talking about large or fully psychedelic doses, has anyone done clinical trials for psilocybin or anything else at very low doses? And, and just what are your thoughts generally around this increasingly popular phenomenon of, of microdosing? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that the the idea is is a fascinating one. You know that that somehow sub perceptual doses of a psychedelic might still contribute to improvements in in mental health and just overall well being. It's really intriguing, um, and I think that there's enough anecdotal reports out there of people who are reporting benefits in this way that it certainly deserves you know really you know robust scientific a- a- experimentation to understand it better. However, the current studies that have been done on the topic have largely shown that it's probably a placebo effect, um, that it's that they haven't been able to discern. Again, it's only been a couple studies, so there's more needs to be done. But at least in these early studies, they've shown that like there really is no difference between placebo and uh, people who are getting the microdose. That being said, you know, there are uh, there's something to be said about the placebo effect is not a bad thing, right? <laughs> like, like the, the, there's a lot of things that affect people's experiences in life. And if you told me that like I could take a microdose of something and I had, you know, let's say a 30% chance that it was going to improve my life. And it might just be because my brain is really powerful and might be driving that change. Like, okay, like if there's no risks involved, then like, why not? You know, cause that's still, that's still an improvement and an betterment of someone's well-being in life because they're, you know, engaged in this behavior, but whether it actually means that like microdosing is effective for that, I think, you know, the science is so far pointing to like, mm, maybe not. Um, but again, we haven't been able to do, cause there hasn't been funding to do it yet. There hasn't been like large studies on this topic that have really started to dig into this experimentally. So I think we need more studies to know for sure, but you know, it's yeah, question about whether or not it's actually working. And you know, around the question of placebos here, you know, when we're doing <clears throat> trials for things like psilocybin, where you know we're using a full dose, so the the effects are quite quite potent uh, mm-hmm. and very noticeable. What are the placebos that are actually used, and and how does how does the question of placebos and blinding? Uh, you know, how do you think about that when you're when you're talking about something like a psychedelic, where the, the effects are just like so obvious, subjectively obvious that uh, you know it's difficult to think about what a true placebo would even look like here. Yeah, it's it's a it's a concern for this type of research. It's something that is has been touted as as almost like a, a deal breaker in terms of really understanding. Um, from the kind of gold standard scientific lens of really understanding the the true efficacy of this approach because it we it's very difficult to mask people to condition it's very difficult to be blinded both as the person receiving the psychedelic or the placebo and as the experimenter right it's hard for us to be blinded as to what people have gotten although i will say not impossible there are there's absolutely been times where people have been given a placebo and it's fooled it, people thought they got the drug and also the experimenters thought they got the drug and it wasn't revealed till later that they didn't. So that expectation, that expectancy of what people think is going to happen, the placebo effect like is real with this drug as well. Um, but most people are functionally unblinded. Most people know they haven't gotten the psychedelic. Most, most uh, therapists know that their participant hasn't gotten it. Um, so it's, it's an issue, it, but it, to me, it's actually the bigger issue that this brings up is not whether or not we'll be able to, you know, have enough evidence to determine whether or not it should be made available to the public. I mean, I think, I think the writing's on the wall in that regard. I think regardless of this issue with blinding, you know, uh, the placebo controlled studies are still showing that there's, you know, an effect of the treatment. Um, and, and, and likely that will be enough for FDA approval. I think the bigger issue that it's bringing up is actually the inadequacy of our scientific system and, and the inadequacy of thinking that the placebo controlled trial is, should be the end all be all of experimental manipulation. And I think that actually this is a really good example of us needing to, as scientists and as, and as a culture that kind of revolves around science as, as a, as a way of knowledge formation that we actually need to think about 
what other ways of knowing what other ways of understanding things is is equally or or potentially just in this case better suited to help us understand um uh the questions that we're asking in these studies and so i think it just for me it just calls into question the adequacy of the system that we're in and how we need to probably find better and and just yeah better alternatives for for this type of study and uh, approximately how many phase three trials are ongoing for psilocybin assisted psychotherapy and what are the key next steps that need to happen to trigger the fda issuing an official opinion and, and approximately how long do we think that's going to take so as far as i know there are two um and possibly a third but for sure two uh phase three trials that are either underway or soon to be underway one is being led by the sona institute here in the us they're pursuing uh, psilocybin therapy for major depressive disorder there's another one being pursued by a company in the uk called compass compass is pursuing it um a psilocybin therapy for treatment resistant depression both of those uh both of those um uh studies and both of those trajectories of studies have already received a what's considered a breakthrough therapy designation by the fda which means that a few years ago based on the evidence at the time the fda already said this is already something that should be fast-tracked this is something that needs to have special fda oversight because the evidence at the time was already so strong um, which is why these studies have pr progressed the way that they have with additional fda oversight why the fda is also signaling that we're you know getting closer to them being ready to make a final determination and ruling my guess is that we will probably be in a place of having some type of ruling by the fda probably in in, in late 2024 early 2025 um would be my best guess uh, we're probably closer in terms of when mdma therapy for ptsd will be approved that's likely to be probably in the first half of 2024 so we're probably going to see the door open with mdma therapy and then within a year of that probably psilocybin therapy for depression um what uh so what what kind of studies are you currently working on what what are the are, are you just sort, sort of doing bigger versions of things you've already done or are you uh doing like new new types of studies answering different types of questions so i'm more on the latter i'm i'm interested in in a couple of different areas of research the first one that um that we've done that we've started now is we've uh, launched a psilocybin trial for veterans with ptsd uh, there has not yet been a study of psilocybin in ptsd in general yet and and specifically not one yet in veterans and so um, we're working on that trial right now at ohio state university we also just got funding uh to launch a comparison study uh of uh, 5-MeO-DMT and psilocybin therapy in lung cancer patients. And so we're going to be launching that trial in early 2024. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, I have several pilot studies that are underway right now that we've been working on for the last couple of years to start to bring together um, uh, minority and underrepresented populations uh, more closely into psychedelic therapy research. And so we're likely in the next year or two going to be launching trials in gender and sexual minority individuals looking at minority stress and the effect of that on mental health and using the psychedelic therapy as, as, as treatment for um, dealing with uh, stigma and, and the negative uh, outcomes of being in a marginalized group. Um, we've also been working on uh, translating all of the uh, psychedelic measures into Spanish so we can reduce the barrier of language um, for people getting into these studies because it's been predominantly English language studies. Um, and so that's hopefully going to um, increase access and availability of people. And then we've also been doing studies looking at um, BIPOC and, and other people of the global majority and kind of racial trauma and the way in which um, just being in, in kind of a, a racial or ethnically diverse group kind of confers its own type of um, depressive or depressive and traumatic kind of reactions to, um, to being marginalized in society. And so um, in all three of those different areas, we're, we're hoping in the coming years with funding to be able to launch studies. And so you mentioned the study using psilocybin and 5-MeO in mm -hmm. patients with lung cancer is that to treat like end-of-life anxiety yeah so that'll be uh treating end of or kind of the anxiety and depression that's associated with receiving a life-threatening illness diagnosis and um just for those who don't know what sort of results have we seen for that type of thing so far 
Yeah, so the so cancer or life-threatening illness in general were some of the first large trials that were published with uh, the uh, kind of looking at psilocybin therapy. They were published in 2016 by researchers at Hopkins and uh, New York University. And those studies were really the first um, out there that that showed in uh, this population of cancer patients that this psychedelic therapy helped to reduce and in some cases a, a kind of completely um, put into remission anxiety and depression and, and was increasing the quality of life um, among uh, folks that had these these life-threatening illness diagnoses um, for some kind of helped them live more meaningful lives with whatever life they had left um, and uh, yeah and kind of deal with things like death anxiety and, and existential distress and and other you know phenomenologic you know things that occur just getting that diagnosis and so it's uh, in fact some of the reason why there was uh, a push to then pursue it more in just depression in general as opposed to just depression that shows up you know really this very you know unique type of um, medical condition um, but just to see whether it could be helpful in general with depression and anxiety um is there anything that you want to reiterate for people about what we discussed today or any final thoughts you have about psilocybin-assisted therapy or, or psychedelic-assisted therapy in general? You know, I just I like to say to people right now that there's a lot of momentum building in this space. There's a lot of really exciting studies that are being published, you know, it seems like every day lately about the potential benefits here. It's important for people to remember that all of these studies are using psychedelics in the context of, you know, highly selectively, you know, chosen people, uh, and they're all getting extensive psychotherapy and preparation and integration. Um, and so, you know, while we're still in this place of having to wait for FDA approval and and having this treatment available, you know, in someplace local to you, there's still a lot of interest and people are really wanting to get access to this as soon as possible. And unfortunately, that's led to, you know, unscrupulous and unethical providers out there who are, you know, willing to give people drugs without any other type of support and, and preparation and, and screening and oversight. And so people are being harmed by that um, in, in part because of all the demand that's being generated um, from this work. So I would just encourage people to, you know, take take some time to let this play out. Let 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 let's get through FDA approval. Let's get kind of closer to this being available for people. Um, or if people are gonna, you know, pursue it because they don't want to wait or things are too difficult to wait longer, then please, please, please make sure that you're working with trusted folks, that you're working with people who are engaging, who have protocols in place to screen you, to to make sure that you're a good fit, that have protocols in place to provide preparation and, and integration support. And, you know, you still, the good, the good places out there that are doing this now, um, before it's legal in the US, um, they're still implementing a lot of the same things that, that you see or hear about in the trials. They're implementing preparation, even if, even if it's only a couple of hours, they're still meeting with people ahead of time to, to ask them, you know, questions to make sure they're still a good fit. Like all of those things are just really good elements of, of harm reduction and, and benefit enhancement. So I just encourage people to to still seek out, um, if they are going to, to still seek out those elements and make sure that they're they're working with trusted folks. All right. Well, Dr. Alan Davis, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much. 